Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Elizabeth Doherty. She was the first palliative care social worker at the largest cancer treatment center in Canada. Her passion is helping those with complex illness, grief, and loss. Her work is simply inspiring. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I just want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us to talk to my listeners a little bit about what you're doing in Canada. And I'm just so thrilled to have this opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. You know, you have extensive experience in palliative care. You're a social worker by trade, but I'm always interested in the story and the journey, how people got where they were. And so I'm just wondering, how did you get where you are? (laughs) It's been an interesting journey for me, indeed. Um, But actually, my first degree was in history. um, And I, I was drawn to history because I was really intrigued by the story. But when I graduated, I realized I was looking for so much more than that. And I actually uh, went to college afterwards and completed a diploma in community work, which is really grassroots social work. And it was there that I realized that it was so much more than than the stories that inspired me. I was actually inspired by the people behind those stories. Uh, So I went on to complete my undergrad and graduate degrees in social work from there. And it was throughout my training, I volunteered and studied in a variety of settings in addiction treatment and child welfare domestic violence, mental health, corrections. I spent a year working at a shelter with men who were homeless. Um, But it was actually when I began a practicum in crisis intervention at an emergency department in the East End of Toronto that I became really inspired. And it was actually supporting people facing complex crises. It was that that witnessing of suffering. Um, I wanted to do what I could to be present for that person, for that family, um, but to really offer support and really to respond to the best of my ability while also recognizing it was only one person, so certainly I was part of a team that could collectively respond, um, realizing we all had a role to play. So I enjoyed that experience so much. I actually volunteered in that capacity for five years, and I stayed there until I graduated. And after finishing grad school, I actually started working in general internal medicine at an academic medical center in the West End of Toronto. Suddenly I was meeting with people following medical crises, whether that was a catastrophic stroke, a new diagnosis of cancer, or even following an acute event related to complex or chronic diseases they lived with for years. For many people, I was also meeting them though at the end of life, and quite often, certainly they were unaware that they were so close to dying, um, and obviously they were really unprepared. So as a social worker, there was so much that I could do to support them, yet um, there were a lot of constraints in the system. So there was a great deal I was unable to do, but I did my best to create spaces to support people in that context you know, supporting them in their grief and their loss, to really hear people and better understand what was important to them and to connect them, um, to empower them where I could. Um, but without even consciously realizing it back then, I was actually adopting a palliative approach to care in the early days of my practice. Um, but it didn't feel like general medicine was a, was a good fit for me. So in less than a year, I moved on to psychosocial oncology at the largest cancer treatment center in Canada. And I really wanted to focus on the emotional aspects of caring. And it was there that I consciously began implementing a palliative approach to care in my practice, so supporting individuals and families from time of diagnosis through to end of life and into bereavement. And thankfully, there was an infusion of funding in 2001 and the palliative care program was launched. 
So it's truly an honor to be the first dedicated palliative social worker as part of that team. What was that like? <laughs> I mean, it's taken about 40 years for people to know what hospice is, which is hospice. You know, it's in palliative care is, is a foreign language or a foreign word to the normal individual in our community. So for you to to recognize that palliative care was the future back in the early 2000s, that was that that was crazy. I mean, you were you're part of this. You were part of like the grassroots movement of palliative care. Uh, well, it had been going on for a while, and thankfully, James Cicely Saunders in the UK really started the modern hospice movement. And and she is a really brilliant example of what hospice palliative care is and and does. Um, you know, for people who don't know who she was, she started her career as a nurse, um, and then recognizing the psychosocial implications of an illness then um, became a social worker um, and then recognizing, uh, you know, the physical components of the, the illness wanted to better respond to pain and symptom management then became a physician. So she was herself her own interprofessional team and really, you know, what, what precipitated this whole movement. So certainly, you know, in my context, I'm very grateful for the awareness that she created and certainly for so many people that have been on your show, there, there are a great many of us who are working to raise awareness, to demystify what hospice palliative care is. And, and although certainly it originated, you know, out of uh, the recognition that so many people suffered end of life, there's so much more that we can do prior to end of life to support people in coping with complex illnesses from time of diagnosis. So certainly it's very much raising awareness and educating about the breadth and scope of what we do. Well, you, you know, you mentioned Dane Sisley, which is, oh uh, man, I, I, one of one of my, I call her my mentor, even though I've never met her, but she, she had this innate ability, uh, to see, uh, and to see not, I'm not so sure it's the future, but to, to see an evolution that individuals wanted to die differently and to create a, a system, uh, a program outside of the medical model was very unique. And, as I see it, and this is where I really want your opinion, is, you know, really palliative and hospice are slowly being engulfed by the medical system. And is that a good thing? What do you think Dame Saunders would think about where palliative and hospice are today? I mean, I certainly see an evolution, um, which is brilliant, because certainly, and, and, you know, as many of your guests have talked about the importance of early intervention. Um, and science backs us up on this, how we actually can promote and improve quality of life for people when palliative care is supported earlier on. Um, I mean, certainly the struggle is we live in a culture of fixing, and the healthcare system struggles when a life-limiting illness doesn't have a cure, and dying certainly can't be cured. Um, but there's so much we can do to address suffering, and sadly, you know, a lot of it's preventable or avoidable. Um, but that needs to be addressed. Um, there's systems issues at play that, that need to be addressed. Um, but even when suffering can't be avoided, there's still so much we can do that we can and should be there to support people as well. And certainly, you know, as you even highlighted in your TED Talk, Kimberly, dying and grief remain taboos. And as long as that's the case, people will continue to remain isolated and struggle to cope. You know, whether those are individuals and families uh, with a life-limiting illness or even healthcare professionals who are really doing their utmost to care for them. It's a culture that really needs to change. And I think palliative care is really trying to demystify how much more we can do to care for people um, beyond and, and earlier on. 
in, in their experience of illness. Yeah, palliative care is, is becoming the bridge, which I I love because, you know, it it we all suffer um, with a broken arm and with with pain management throughout our lives, especially as we age and get introduced to, you know, the, the kinks and the arthritis that is happening in our bodies. And palliative care is outside of that end of life realm, too. And a lot of people associate it with um, just end of life. Now, that's where, you know, I'm trying to help people understand is that palliative care can be applied in a various um, aspects in your life, not just at the end of life, but it really is awesome to have palliative care at the end of your life because it's we're, we live in a fragmented world. And so palliative care is that bridge that kind of helps us understand the medical system that some of us are not aware of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I, I recently met a woman who um, we were talking about support for her mom who actually has end-stage cancer. And it was my first time meeting her, and, you know, I always use the term palliative care, too. I know many people shy away from it and try to use something different, uh, you know, for fear of not wanting to, um, I guess, really just for fear of the word and, and all of the, all that it, you know, that it intimates. So, certainly, I use the word, and I explain the word, and I explain what it means. And, and actually, this woman said to me, she said, I, I know about palliative care. She said, believe it or not, she said, I actually have psoriasis. And she said, I was actually admitted to an outpatient um, palliative care team to a clinic to manage my, my pain and symptoms that just weren't being managed by my specialist. She said, I am so grateful for palliative care in that context for me as an individual. Um, so it's lovely when people can see how broad um, the reach can be, um, but also how soon, you know, and, and how important it is to support people early in that process. You know, I, I still remember reading an article a number of years ago that talked about interviewing um, bereaved carers um, and their perspectives on end of life. And it certainly confirmed for me what I witnessed in practice that while most of the literature, much of the literature focuses on death itself as like a single event or time period, it's actually all those processes that take place in the days and weeks and months and even years before someone dies um, that, that inform that whole end of life experience. And that's where each and every one of us can have an impact for that individual and their family, supporting them as early as possible. Um, and caring for them throughout the trajectory of that illness, however long that may be. And and we have to all admit that we are living longer and that we're all of us will face some complex illness. And what I love is you specialize in like therapeutic interventions. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of those therapeutic interventions that you use? Uh, well, so it certainly really depends on on where people are at. Um, uh, and, and we already talked about Dean Cicely Saunders. So she talked about the concept of total pain. Pain can have a number of components, um, you know, physical, psychological, social, emotional, and spiritual. Um, so certainly it's reflective of the fact that it's an opportunity for interprofessional collaboration, but it really illustrates the variety of reasons someone may experience suffering um, and how it impacts an individual or family in a variety of ways. So certainly for me as a clinician, it demonstrates that there are a lot of complex issues to address in palliative care. Um, so in my practice, the interventions may be focused on psychoeducation or addressing a practical outcome or discussions around goals of care or advanced care planning. But other approaches may be more focused on, you know, exploring issues around grief or loss and how to cope with that, um, which is so specific to each individual and family. Um, I also may explore meaning-making or legacy work um, because I work with people of all ages, whether it's an adult diagnosed with an illness or whether it's a child who's been diagnosed. 
So I work with, you know, the individuals themselves, with the family exclusively, depending on where people are at. I often, quite often, bring entire families together. Um, but it really depends on the needs of the individual and family and exploring their goals and how I can best support them in that context. And you have you have so much experience in a in an acute setting. And in now that you're you have opened a private practice uh, in the last couple of years. How do you explain to individuals what you do, um, even though you've been in an acute setting, which are hospitals and doctor's offices and things like that? But, you know, how do you explain to the normal individual in your community what you do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it's, <laughs> it's sort of a funny question, right? No, not it's at like, all. Yeah, I'm, it's. <laughs> I'm laughing because as anyone who works in palliative care knows, when you tell someone what you do, you're met with this like mix of confusion and sort of like discomfort, <laughs> or occasionally. Or like, you know, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> you cry a lot, don't you? Yeah. So for people who don't quite understand the work that we do, they don't understand what an extraordinary honor it is to do this work. Um, but really, I, I explain to people, you know, that once someone's been diagnosed with a serious illness, regardless of prognosis, that person and family, their lives are instantly changed. So certainly, I do what I can to support people who are facing a serious illness in a variety of ways. So whether that's offering supportive counseling following the diagnosis, I mean, many people talk about the fact that they don't know how to tell their partner or their kids or their siblings or their parents about the fact that they've been diagnosed with this illness. And it's interesting because nowadays in healthcare, we know that there's recognition that healthcare providers need, you know, training on how to have difficult conversations or these complex conversations. None of that exists for individuals and families from the time they've been diagnosed with a life-living illness or are facing death or dying. So part of my role is now and always has been, how do I support families to turn to their loved ones and talk about what's happening? So that's certainly very much what I do. Um, and the other part as well is people protect those they love. So quite often it's sheltering them or shielding them, you know, from their own grief or fear and in effect isolating each other. Um, so, you know, I'll hear from someone, for instance, saying, you know, I don't want to tell my family that I'm scared or angry or, or worried, but it's the same breath they'll say, but, you know, I don't know what my husband and my child's thinking. They won't open up to me. So I try to normalize um, and, and identify those common thoughts and feelings and emotions and try and create opportunities or spaces for people to come together to share their grief and their loss, but absolutely focusing on their strengths um, and opportunities to focus on what matters most to them. Well, you know, what I've learned through my experience at working with people facing end of life, um, they I've learned this life lesson that it takes communication for connection uh-huh. and it takes connection for communication and uh-huh. it's like this evolution of you know really why we were born we were born to connect and uh-huh. to connect is to communicate but we forget that because we don't want to burden or uh-huh. it's hard to be vulnerable i mean but yet the more vulnerable we are the more real and authentic we are you know taking uh-huh. some words from bonet brown um but it's so hard. It's so hard. And I, I know we're evolving, but we're we're just not there yet. And and I know you see it every day. And it takes someone like yourself to help not make it so scary or mm-hmm. talk about it in not so, you know, dark words. It can be a light hearted, engaging conversation. Um, and the sad thing is, 
you know, 70% of us wait until there is a serious illness to talk about what we want at end of life. And suddenly emotions get involved, which can Mm -hmm. derail even the slightest bit of common sense um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to end of life care. How have you seen your services benefit the individuals you work with? Because I know you probably go into a home and people are not talking and you, you engage into a conversation. What have you seen beneficial come out of what you provide these, these families? What you've already identified, Kimberly, it's really that connection um, and, and creating space to identify that it's, you know, it's like, you know, the book is just released on grace. It's okay to not be okay. Um, that, that this isn't easy and it's hard and it can be scary and frightening and sad and there's so much uncertainty, but what do we know here and now? And certainly trying to create that safe space for people to share, you know, their thoughts and fears and support one another instead of, you know, being isolated from one another. And because people have different coping strategies as well, talking about this is not sort of an innate approach for many people. You know, they have different, obviously people have different ways of dealing with with grief and with emotions. So it's trying to find out what works for the individual as part of that collective, as part of that family. Um, to support them in the process and, and really talking about, you know, how to cope with the uncertainty and the grief together. Um, and, and there's lots of different ways we can do that. But, but really, you know, empowering the family to talk about their goals um, and, and to create that space for them to, to come together. Yeah, it's like identifying the elephant in the room because it's <laughs> it really, yeah, Eddie, because... <laughs> Because the thing is, we you don't want to say something that is going to be hurtful or wrong or, you know, anything, but it's 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 so there in the room. Um, and to acknowledge it, it it just breaks it down. And I, I just yeah, the elephant in the room, um, bless his heart, has been sitting off in the corner and wondering why don't people like me? Um, because it's that bridge of when we do connect, um, it, it can open up so many things. And I guess my point is sometimes we don't even know why we are reacting or we're angry or we're going through all of these emotions. And when someone comes in like you, a professional that says, this is what I see, that anger is you not coming or grief. It could be grief or it could be, Hey, this is how you're handling the situation. And this it's coming out like this. And it, it takes a professional to be like, man, that, that is why I'm angry. And in some of the most simplest things and the most obvious things, when you're in a, a hard situation, it, you just don't see it. And you just don't see the elephant in the room. And it takes someone like yourself to say, Hey, let's talk about this. And let's open this ump in a safe space. Um, you, you seem scared. Um, and, and, and just have that open conversation. What I love about your career is that from you, the very you know, early 2000 to here we are on the right in 2018, have you seen this entire palliative care movement evolve over the years and how have you seen it evolve because we know it we know it has but how have you seen it embraced by a you know the medical community but also the community at large mm-hmm. um well it's interesting i i can only speak to my experience here in canada um but you know as i mentioned the the first palliative care unit opened here not that long ago it was only 1974 um where the first palliative care unit opened so really palliative care was in the hospital setting 
eventually merged with community-based hospice, which was really community-driven. Um, so that unified movement of hospice palliative care has been, you know, wonderful in the fact that in terms of advocacy um, and moving forward, um, you know, not just uh, focusing on end-of-life care, but then, again, with palliative care, promoting earlier interventions. So that's certainly been something in Canada we're very grateful to see, and thankfully with our Canada Health Act, it's not a fee-for-service model here, so people can access care from time of diagnosis, you know, with a palliative approach to care through to end of life, um, and, and that's thankfully um, not something that's going to create, you know, um, a financial burden for them because that's, that care is covered through the Canadian government, so we're very fortunate to have that. And in addition to that, you know, there's the recognition within the, the government that caregivers are at a disadvantage. So in 2003, the Canadian government introduced something called Compassionate Care Benefits, which has evolved since 2003. It actually pays a benefit um, for people and with job security so that they can actually leave their jobs and receive benefits for anyone who's at risk of dying within six months. So those caregivers are eligible to receive benefits, um, a portion of their salary for that time while they can be away from work and care for their loved ones. Um, But what's really exciting right now is actually today in the Senate uh, here in Canada, um, they're discussing a pan-Canadian approach to palliative care. So there's a bill that went through our House of Commons that's now before the Senate, and it's actually in discussions today talking about providing for the development and implementation of a, of a framework designed to guarantee access for all Canadians to high-quality palliative care. So not only looking at standards and access to care, but also standards in education and training for all health care providers, too. So that's a brilliant evolution. But, but certainly in medical schools, you know, it's, coming, certainly, and it's, it's come a long way. But sadly, many of this still remains electives, right, in terms of communication, in terms of psychosocial support. So as long as dying and death is not an elective <laughs> for any healthcare right. provider, it really needs to be integrated in the mainstream education for every single health science learner. So that's Well, you just blew my mind. How so? You know, how, <laughs> because, I mean, Yes, you're in Canada, and you're you're just right over a very thin line from the United States. And I mean, all right, so you do have a prime minister that is good looking. Um, but can I can our government call your government government so we can figure this shit out? I mean, seriously, because the, there's just so much fear of socialized medicine, which you have, correct? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And and there's just so much fear here in the United States. Um, but I do believe, I don't know if I, I don't know if I fully understand socialized medicine, but I do believe that healthcare should be a human right. Uh-huh. And, and I just feel like maybe you and I can hook our government people up and let them chat <laughs> because I think we can learn from you. Please don't build a wall. I mean, we need you. Um, so I, I hope that, that, uh, that we can learn from how advanced uh, Canada is when it comes to acknowledging end of life. This blows my mind that you're willing to have a benefit for individuals who have loved ones facing a serious illness in the last six months, 12 months of their lives to leave their work mm-hmm. and take care of them. Mm-hmm. It's been nationally legislated. Yeah, it's not even provincial. It's a national legislation that, that secures someone's job. Now, granted, the, the, you know, the income is small, but certainly it's, it's job security and it's the opportunity to leave work if they're able Again, this benefit doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody has the opportunity to do so. And for many people, you know, they might not know about it till end of life, right? Because, again, many of these conversations don't happen until someone's really close to death. But the reality is it still exists. The benefits, compassionate care benefits still exist here in Canada. 
Well, you guys get a lot of snow, right? <laughs> it depends. It because, depends. I think I was Okay, because you, like, then we, we can talk. Maybe really maybe <laughs> maybe my passport will let me come over the line and really experience this. Um because I, I I'm not a friend of snow. Um but I'm I'm I don't mind cold, but I snow is I, I don't get along with it. But you know, I'm hoping that to to make my way up there because I just want to learn more about how you guys are implementing this. Nothing is perfect, nothing's gonna solve everyone's problems. Problems, exactly. But your government tends to be aware of certain things um, that people could take advantage of. So I, I'm just really proud of your government and how far you guys have taken palliative care. And I believe, in my opinion, and I stress my opinion, I believe that you guys are a little further than, and maybe a lot further than the United States when it comes to recognizing services at end of life and, and how do we fund that. So I applaud you guys. Well, I'm grateful because people can access palliative care in the community. They can access it in long-term care, retirement homes. They can access it in acute care and in residential hospice. So there are a number of different options. But I was going to mention, though, certainly, you know, the idea of a public health approach to palliative care is certainly something that is a newer concept. And it's really how to engage the public at many levels. Um, to promote compassionate communities. So this is something that, you know, is unrelated to the government, but really, you know, engaging the community. Um, and, and that's actually my own community here and just outside of one of the suburbs of Toronto um, is something that our community is looking at how to engage others to support people to live well and also to support people to die well. Um, so certainly <laughs> maybe we're assigned to be the San Francisco of the North, but <laughs> Hey, I, now, now you're talking. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's great. <laughs> San Francisco of the North. That's awesome because I, something is in the water in San Francisco and absolutely. Thank God, what a brilliant group of clinicians and educators and researchers they are. <laughs> yeah. And I know a lot of Americans don't claim that California is part of the United States, but I absolutely do. And San Francisco <laughs> is is as the leader when it comes to allowing room for innovation and Absolutely. design and Absolutely. design thinking. So it's really awesome. Now, so you're doing all this in your community, but you're also an assistant clinical professor with the Department of Family Medicine, a division of palliative care and faculty of the human science at McMaster University. So, uh-huh. which is crazy how you even have time to do that. But <laughs> How are medical schools enhancing education around death and dying? Do you see that evolving? I mean, has the curriculum changed as as palliative care has evolved? Uh, so it is changing. I mean, certainly it's required for anyone training in palliative care. So that's brilliant. I think, you know, like I said earlier, it'll be brilliant when it's required for all healthcare professionals um, and trainees specifically. Um, but absolutely, the focus is on improving communication. Um, but the systems obviously are, are rigid and, and, and in terms of working within acute care settings, you know, until some of those systems change, um, you know, the training is certainly setting brilliant groundwork for, for new learners um, going into the system. But again, until, you know, those that are training them are recognizing the breadth and scope of palliative care, it certainly will be an uphill battle, not one that's, you know, that's defeatist, but Absolutely. Education is training to make it more engaging and really also promoting interprofessional education, which is also something I do. Actually, we have a night. uh, I'll be a part of a night next week at University of Toronto. I'm part of interprofessional education there. So we have these two nights a year. It's called Death and Dying. And so we bring together learners from 11 health science programs. It's kind of like arranged seating at a wedding. And everybody (laughs) comes in. And it's true. And the dinner's provided because students love that. So it's med students, nursing, social work, occupational, physiotherapy, you know, all of them. Registry, you know, um, 
uh, so respiratory therapists, everybody, speech language pathologists. So we bring together 11 health science um, disciplines, uh, learners into one room and it's arranged seating. So basically we create, unbeknownst to them, interprofessional teams at each table. And we talk about hospice palliative care and we talk about supporting individuals and families facing illness and dying and death. And then they have case-based examples to work together as teams to, to decide with their unique specialties, how do they support from an individual perspective, but as a collective to care for individuals and families. So that interprofessional education is a really brilliant evolution as well. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. And that's a really exciting thing to be a part of as well. Well, you just seem to have just your hands in so many things when it comes to end of life and improving end of life for your community. I think, I mean, I've seen a, a talk that you've done. You're, you're a great speaker. And I'm wondering how people can get in touch with you to, for, to, for you to do education or workshops or how do, how do individuals tap into your experience? Um, so certainly, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I'm one of many people as part of this movement, but I'm grateful that I, I have the opportunity to teach undergraduate and graduate and postgraduate learners. I also teach healthcare professionals, too, of all disciplines, um, and then I offer support in the community, too. Um, and then I specialize in working with kids and youth. Um, so for me, I have a website, actually, if anybody's curious, um, and so it's the Elizabeth Doherty Consulting. Um, and yeah, so certainly as part of my clinical care, you know, is, is listed there in terms of the, the support I offer to individuals and families, but teaching and workshops and seminars and courses are also part of what I do. Um, so if anyone is interested and would like to connect, I welcome any conversation about hospice palliative care. My friends and family know that about me. So yeah, I'm, I'm that person at the party. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, have we talked about advanced care planning? No, I'm just kidding. I do have boundaries and understand what is appropriate <laughs> to bring it in, but but my kids, my family all know about advanced care planning, hospice palliative care. So certainly I welcome any opportunity to connect with people to talk about any aspect of supporting people to live well and to die better. And if any of our listeners want to visit uh, the podcast page on my website at deathbydesign.com, I'll have a link to your website so you can get in touch with uh, Elizabeth um, to gain uh, knowledge and, and and just collaborate. This is this is not a, a large community and it can, these these people working in end of life, um, you know they have kindred spirits because we're in it because of the mission. Um, we're in it to help people and to radically change how people face end of life. And I believe that it can be done by one person's passion. And I, you know, I met you through social media and your passion just exudes um, and just comes out with what you're doing. And I, I think that one person can change the world and one person can change how people are dying and, and you're doing that. So this is by just how you're living you're teaching other people to make a small difference that can make a big impact and how one or two or thousands of people can, can change where and how they die and um, empower the community, like you said earlier, to reclaim their voice at end of life. And so I just, I just appreciate your time and your work so much. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day and, and talking a little bit about what you're doing in Canada. And I really encourage anyone who is interested in, in just having a conversation with you, get in touch with, with you. Um, uh, you got your website. I'll, I'll list it on our website page. So I just applaud you. <laughs> you're very kind, Kimberly, but thank you for, I 
mean, I really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for doing what you're doing. Really highlighting the importance of, of people really designing their death and dying and, and feeling empowered in the process, helping people to have informed conversations. So thank you for doing what you're doing, Kimberly. Well, thank you. And just like BJ Miller told me, it, it's a drumbeat. Mm-hmm. And we're all part of that drumbeat. And it's going to take all of us, designers, artists, community members, clinicians, to come together collectively to reclaim death as a human experience and not a medical event. And you're doing that. And so I just, whatever I can do to support you, um, you know I'm here for you. I think the world of you. Um, I, I just, I just <laughs> but, but keep doing the good works and I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.